the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. It is Putschke Day, and we'll talk with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, who leans hard each year into the cultural tradition of the beginning of the Lenten season. She'll also discuss what's happening in Ukraine and give a preview of President Joe Biden's State of the Union address. Then we're going to talk with author Dan Charnas, who has written a deep and compelling biography of legendary Detroit-born hip-hop producer Jay Dilla. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Happy Putschke Day. It's a day that is filled with meaning for one member of our congressional delegation here in Michigan. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell continues her late husband John's tradition of delivering Putschke all around southeast Michigan. On this day, she joins us now to talk about what's happening in Washington and around the world and to update us on her profound love of Putschke Day. Debbie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Stephen, good morning. It's good to be with you in these uh, very interesting times. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot going on, and, and I guess Putschkes are a nice distraction from that. But I got to say, I'm, I've never really been a fan of of Putschke. I, I, I don't like it. It's too, it's too sweet for me. But, uh, but tell me why it means so much to you. So, and I actually think this year it has more meaning for different reasons. I, I am, as you know, a person that believes in ritual and traditions. Mm-hmm. And the Dingle family immigrated to the United States from Poland. Punchkeys are a Polish celebration of Fat Tuesday the last chance to indulge before the fasting days of Lent. And it's in a day that we celebrate the heritage of the cultures that we come from. You know, and traditions like this keep us connected, and they connect generations together. But I think that as we're watching what's happened in happening in Ukraine, mm-hmm. we see so many people fleeing Ukraine, Poland opening its borders, taking in those that need help, it reminds us of 79 years ago yeah. uh, when Poland, when Russia uh, invaded Czechoslovakia. It reminds us of Germany invading many of these countries uh, in Europe and that we can't take freedom for granted. So it also, um, it's, a, it's just a time of remembrance to learn from history Uh and also to say to people that America has always been a country of opportunity, and we need to appreciate what we have here in our democracy. Yeah. Uh, those, those images that you called up there of Russia invading Eastern Europe uh, during the Cold War, 
of Germany invading Eastern Europe uh, as a prelude to, to, to World War II, it kind of reminds us that the instability in that region is not new, that, that people who, who live there, people who are from there, are really familiar with what's going on. And that's not, that's not a good thing. I mean, that, that, that is, uh, I think, a black mark on the international community's ability to, to thwart this kind of aggression. I mean, uh, uh, when you see these images of people pouring over the Polish border, like you say, you, you, you think of black and white images from a really long time ago. And, and I think you have to stop and wonder, why are we still putting up with and, and enduring this kind of aggression? So I want to, I'm going to disagree with you a little. Okay. And uh, Eastern Europe has been stable. Much of the world has been stable for decades. And uh, this is the first time since World War II that we have witnessed uh, this kind of aggression. Uh, which is an unprovoked attack, quite frankly, um, and cannot be justified in any way. But the other thing that has we work with our allies, and the other thing that has struck many, and perhaps the person that matters the most, President Putin, is how unified our allies, allies are, how quickly they have worked together, on sanctions, freezing bank accounts, to feel the economic consequences of this unjustified aggression. Even Switzerland yesterday, even who has always remained neutral, has frozen Russian assets. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we had a new world order. People respected that peace, never took it for granted. But I don't think that I, I, this is the this is the direct action of a tyrant who cannot justify in any way, shape, or form this invasion. And for the most part, the world is reacting together to send that message. And I also want to say to you, the president has been very clear that we will not put boots on the ground. We do not want a military war with Russia. And these are really, really very scary times, hmm. delicate times, and we all want diplomacy to be what works. So, so I mean, I guess when, when I think of the instability in that region, though, I guess I'm thinking in the, in the sort of grand historical context. I mean, Eastern Europe and the, the, the Caucasus have been in the middle of some contest between East and West since at least the 16th century. And yeah, it's been stable for a time, but much of that stability was because of Russian control of it for, for a really long time, right? And, and the tension between East and West played out during the Cold War over that, over that region. And even since the Cold War, Russia has made several gestures toward this exact kind of activity. I mean, it has threatened 
the, the, the former uh, Soviet republics with invasion or, or, or some other kind of aggression for a really long, for a really long time. And so I guess uh, for me, it's, it's that we haven't figured out how to bring long-term stability to that, to that region without the tensions between East and West uh, either threatening or disrupting. Um, and, 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 and I feel like that's what we're seeing play out right now. From my perspective, we don't want a war with Russia. But President Putin had no right to launch into a heat. This was clearly a premeditated war. Thousands are going to die. It's disrupting the global economy already, and it's setting a dangerous precedent. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what you do when you have a, someone like Putin that you – I mean, he is – he is a dictator. I mean, that is the truth of the matter. Hmm. Uh, and what he has done is not only an attack on the innocent people of Ukraine, but he's also threatening global peace and security. Right. Now, there have been people like that throughout history. And we're always going to have to, you know, we have other countries that we've got delicate relationships with. But this is um, a, a very, what, what he did cannot We are all working together to use economic sanctions, to use nonviolent means of responding. We've got to work with our international uh, partners to ensure that we've got this, what you're witnessing, this immediate, strong, coordinated response. But whenever there's someone like Putin, you have to deal with it. But our world order has been stable for a a number of decades now. I mean, I remember visiting Ukraine Mm -hmm in the early 90s after they had gotten their independence and met with many of these leaders. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has stunned Putin, maybe some other people in the world, is the resiliency of the Ukrainians. And they have been incredible these last six days as they have shown their strength and their courage. President Zelensky inspires all of us. So, it, it, look, it's a scary time. Mm-hmm. And whenever you've got someone like Putin, you need to worry about him. But I think until now, for the last several decades, at the end of the Cold War, which we really saw with Ronald Reagan and uh, tearing down of the Berlin Wall and a number of other things, um, we need to worry. We need to worry about what this is going to do to the world. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, a Democrat from Dearborn, who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district. Uh, we're talking on uh, Puchki Day, a day that is very important to her and to the Dingell family, also pretty important to a lot of people here in southeast Michigan who uh, who celebrate this beginning of the Lenten season uh, in, in religious terms. Uh, we're talking about uh, also what's going on in Ukraine and what else is going on in Washington. Uh, Debbie, I wonder what you think Congress's role should be right now uh, while we watch what's happening in Ukraine. We're, we're going to hear from uh, President Biden uh, during the State of the Union very soon. Do you expect that he will be asking something perhaps of, of Congress in this matter? We had a classified briefing last night with all of the 
leaders from the Director of Intelligence, Homeland Security, Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Defense Austin, Chairman Millies of the Joint Chiefs, Secretary Granholm, and Secretary Raimondo talking about all of it. And I, I must say to you, one of the things that I, I really want to comment on uh, is there was a bipartisan standing innovation um, that just was like the first time I've ever seen this happen spontaneously hmm. about the quality of the intelligence that our professionals got and reported. They're not political. They're there to protect us and sure. protect this country. And many did not believe what was being made public. Secretary Blinken, I don't think, I think it's okay to make this point, talked about talking to one of our allies the same day the invasion started. And it was one of his counterparts. And he said, you're still saying it's going to start any moment. And that same person called at 1.30 and said, your intelligence has been spot on from the beginning mm. when you were right. Wow. Um, so we need to understand we have real professionals that are working every day to um, keep us safe. Our question is to all of these men and women, what do we need to do to support you? Do you have the resources? We are clearly trying to give support to the Ukrainians in every way that we possibly can without entering into um, a military uh, or imminent hostilities that put our men and women in the military in danger. We've got a number of resolutions. Um, do they need more money? We're asking all of that questions. I do believe, um, as I said to you earlier, the president's made it clear that there's no military solution to this conflict and that we're not going to deploy U.S. troops to Ukraine. But if the situation escalates, that the president has to come to us, the Congress, for authorization pursuant to the war powers resolution before any U.S. troops are deployed into areas or situations where there is a risk of intimate hmm. hostilities. Our job is to monitor this, to be supportive, make sure people have the resources, and putting our troops in danger requires congressional action. Hmm. Uh, so what about the concerns for our economy, for instance, the rising prices we're all seeing from inflation due to this disruption to the global supply chain and the pandemic. Does this war make it more difficult uh, for us? Not that not that our primary concern should be necessarily ourselves uh, in all of this, but, uh, but does this aggravate the things that, uh, that we're living with right now? I think it's very important that the president tonight show that he understands what inflation is doing to every household, what is happening when you go to the grocery store, what is happening when you go to the gas station, and what is happening in so many different aspects of our lives. I mean, Cranes today said that rents have gone up 10% in the uh, Detroit area. I think the biggest area, we have been doing things, we're going to continue to do things that are going to address the supply chain issues. Prior to this, I mean, even the, the Ambassador Bridge has demonstrated what happens when we're relying on another country for um, our parts, mm -hmm. uh, for our supply chain. I think the pandemic shined a light on the need for us to be more self-reliant, bring those supply chains back home, you know, from the PPE equipment to the fact that there is almost 90% of our medicine right now is made in China. And that is not good. And we're going to continue. We've got legislation passed. We need to get it out of 
conference committee that's going to address many of these issues, the logistics issues that were backing up the ports and happening in some of the other countries because of COVID. You're going to start to see some see those addressed and released there. Oil is a real problem, Stephen. Uh, we are still at this hour importing oil from Russia, about mm-hmm. 500,000 barrels a day. That is mostly targeted at going to Alaska and Hawaii. Yesterday, Canada announced that it would not import oil anymore. Uh, we are at maximum production. We have no more ability to produce liquid natural gas or gas. There are plants that are being built now that Hopefully, we'll come online sooner than later. There is nothing waiting for a permit approval. There are more plants ready to be built that need to get underway. But we have to look at our oil supply. What do we do for the short term? How do we address that? And quite frankly, I think it also, we've got to, you know, I've been talking about this since I was a kid, lessen our dependence on foreign oil. And how do we make ourselves up? sufficient? And how do we deploy more renewable resources so that we aren't dependent on fossil fuels from other countries like Russia for our energy supplies? And I think this short term, we're going to have to have one set of solutions. But midterm and longer term, I think this creates more, not less need to continue with those strategies. I'm talking with Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, Democrat from Dearborn, who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district. Um, I, I also want to have you just think a, a little about what you expect to hear from President Joe Biden uh, with his State of the Union speech tonight. Beyond Ukraine, beyond inflation, he's got quite a bit going on. He's got a quite a bit he still has on his agenda to, to, to get done. What, what, what do you expect to hear from him? Well, clearly he's going to talk about Ukraine because that's on the minds of everybody. And then the next two issues that I know just from being out and about uh, when I'm home every weekend or when I'm home for the week like I was for the last two weeks, people are concerned about COVID. They're sick of COVID. Um, But even though we're sick of COVID and we're done with it, it's not done with us. Mm -hmm. How do we move to the next phase of COVID? How do... Um, it's probably here forever, but if we have another surge, how are we going to keep people safe? How do we get back to keeping our schools open, getting people work? The nature of work, by the way, is probably Hmm. permanently and forever changed too, but we have to talk about how we move forward with COVID. That he will um, most certainly talk about. He will address inflation, as you and I just talked about. But, you know, in the midst of all these crises of the last couple of weeks, there's been a new United Nations study that shows how the earth has warmed up more, uh, the devastating impact it is having in many ways. And we in Michigan saw it ourselves with we had more than last summer. How many once every 100 year floods did we have just over the course of the summer? So he'll address that. He'll address health care. He'll address how do we lower the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, he'll address the issue of public safety and keeping our community safe and what the different ways are that we do that. So I think you're going to hear a speech tonight that is going to address a lot of the issues that are on all of our minds. And he'll also talk about what we have gotten done, how we got the first infrastructure bill passed in decades, 
and what that means for our communities, just not um, fixing our roads and our bridges, but bringing Internet Mm. into every community, how we build out electric vehicle infrastructure and a host of other issues that really matter to people in all of our communities. Uh, What are you anticipating for the run-up to the midterm elections? Of course, most presidents face some hurdles, uh, keeping control, uh, keeping their party in control in in Congress. uh, A lot of the prognosticators already say that uh, President Joe Biden is going to have an even tougher time than, than many presidents, that, that his popularity is, is pretty low. Uh, you also have uh, a, a new map here in Michigan to, to contend with, and that new map has inspired you to run in a, in a different space than, than you've served in uh, since you've been in Congress. I, w- I wonder what you make of, of where we are with midterms in the case, I guess, that Democrats have to make to to keep power in, in Washington. So I have several things to say on this. First is, while I'm having to move my home, most of the current district that I represent it's, will be yeah. in the new district right. that I represent. It has a new number. It uh, has some new communities that I'm getting to know and spending time with, <laughs> but it has my down rivers. It has Western Wayne. It has Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti and places that I know and love and I'm in every weekend. I respect the will of the people. We had an independent redistricting commission, and I'm abiding by what they did. Uh, two, I will tell you that Michigan's going to be a very competitive state. I think it'll be one of the most competitive in the country. Dave Wasserman of Cook's political report says control of the House could come down to Michigan. Uh, Our governor's going to be one of the number one targeted races in the country. Michigan's going to be a very competitive state. But I also am someone who, one, thinks it's way too early to make predictions about November. I think I began to tell you about this point that I thought that Donald Trump could win. And I was fighting with you on Election Day (laughs) about whether Donald Trump was going to win. When at that point I knew... I knew he was going to win, and most people were still doubting me, even on Election Day, as you'll recall. Mm -hmm. The only poll that matters is the poll on Election Day. I think a lot of people are just unhappy, period, with everybody and everything. Democrats have to really talk about what they have done. Uh, I think all of us, I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, you need to worry about our democracy. You need to worry I mean, what you are seeing in Ukraine, people are attacking democracies around the world. They are trying to divide us with fear and hate. And I I hope that people are going to look at what do they want for the future? What do they care about? What are the issues that they're going to – why are they going to vote? And I hope one of them is to protect our democracy. And they do want people that are going to make sure that their job is going to be okay, that they can put food on the table, that they can educate their children. If you're sick, be able to go to the doctor and afford your medicine and live in a community that's safe. We need to support our law enforcement, and we need to not be afraid to support. The fund the police is not an acceptable phrase. We have to stand up for what we really want and need and deliver that message. And if we do it, and we really cut through and show people what our values are, I am someone who believes that we can still win in November. Okay, Debbie Dingle, Democrat from Dearborn, who represents Michigan's 12th Congressional District. 
is, of course, always great to have you here on Detroit Today, but especially great to talk with you each year on uh, Pudgy Day. Uh, thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Stephen. Happy Pudgy Day, everybody. When we come back, we're going to talk with author Dan Charnas about his wonderful new book on the life and music of Jay Della. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Every now and then, someone comes along who's so special, so talented, and focused that they change an entire genre. They play with a particular craft, opening up a new way of being a new way of expressing something. And these groundbreakers don't just do something in a new way. They fundamentally change the thing they are doing. Think about how Michael Jordan changed basketball, how Tom Wolfe changed journalism, or how Jon Stewart changed comedy. These people come from all sorts of places, sometimes unlikely places, and sometimes they're from your own backyard. James DeWitt Yancey was that kind of person for us here in Detroit. While growing up on the city's east side, Yancey, known by many by his stage name, Jay Dilla, didn't have a whole lot to his name. He wasn't a rich guy. He didn't have a lot of resources at his disposal. But what he had, he worked with really well. He crafted and tinkered and spent endless hours on his bottomless passion for music. He died way too early at age 32, but he changed the shape of hip-hop and music forever. And that is nowhere near an overstatement. He weaved together a variety of artists from Q-Tip to The Far Side to Common and Erica Badu in a way that maybe has never been done since. And when you think of hip-hop, when you think of the modern expression of black music, in America. Whether you do it overtly or inadvertently, you're really thinking about Jay Dilla. Because in one way or another, you have heard his work, maybe without even realizing it. Dan Jarnus is the author of a new book that honors the work and legacy of Jay Dilla. It is a fascinating read, a deep, and compelling exploration of this young man's life and the unbelievable influence he has had on all of the music that we think of as American music today. So I'm really happy to welcome Dan Charnas here to Detroit Today. 
to talk about Jay Dilla, to talk about music, and to talk about Detroit. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and what a thoughtful, beautiful essay that was. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I should also say, before we get started, there's no way to have this conversation uh, as though we don't know each other. <laughs> Dan and I have known each other for several years, and I have been hearing about this book for a really long time. And so I was really, really excited when it came out, and I am equally excited today to have him here uh, to talk to talk about Jay Dilla and to talk about this incredible connection he has to, to all of this music. So, so Dan, this is, this is going to be fun as well as uh, informative. So I'm already having fun. (laughs) (laughs) So, so start here Uh, for people who may not be familiar, who was Jay Dilla and why is he so important to the music that I think all of us think of as American music uh, today? Sure. James DeWitt Yancey, uh, born in Detroit, uh, grew up in Conant Gardens, uh, you know, near Seven Mile, uh, went to Detroit schools, uh, sort of learned how to program a drum machine and became sort of an MC and rapper on the Detroit, the nascent Detroit hip hop scene in the 1990s and was basically plucked out of obscurity by uh, a very famous rapper producer named Q-Tip of a tribe called Quest. Uh, And therein launched a brief career, only about 12 years uh, before his untimely death. Uh, But that career, though short, really had a tremendous influence, not only on his peers, but on all genres of popular music Mm -hmm. thereafter because of a particular rhythmic innovation that the book is named after uh, that I call dilettante. Yeah, yeah. So what is dilettante? What what does that mean? This is the way that I explain it to my students at NYU. Um, In our popular music, we tend to have two time fields, meaning the ways that musicians sort of relate and feel to time, uh, feel about time. It's beyond, you know, notation. The European tradition has given us straight time, and you know what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. It sounds like one and two and three and four, and where every beat is counted evenly. The American tradition, beginning in the early 20th century, gave us uneven time or swing time, and you know what that sounds like. It sounds like one and two and three and four and... And so in our popular music, we've been essentially oscillating between these two time fields, sometimes in the same song. Uh, One example that I give is Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Mm. Um, Pretty much everybody knows that song, where there's this opera section in the middle, and then it switches to rock and roll. And in so doing, it switches from straight time to swing time. And there are lots of other songs that do this, but... Those were essentially our options in popular music. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I should also say that swing is a retention of African polyrhythm, right? It is a way swing and syncopation in the American context come to us from Africa, ultimately, right? But the swing and straight dichotomy didn't change until around 1998 when James Yancey, in a basement in Conan Gardens, 
begin to collide those two time fields simultaneously, putting them in conflict with each other, mm. uh, creating this kind of real rhythmic friction that people have tried to put language to. They've called it drunken, sloppy, loping, limping. <laughs> uh, but it is not sloppy. It is actually intentional. It is a particular groove uh, that came out of Detroit, a particular time field that then other, not only other programmers tried to emulate, but traditional musicians on traditional instruments, drums, bass, keyboards. Uh, and that is really what makes this a huge advance in music, I argue. Yeah, yeah. And for listeners who are, I think, super intrigued by what you just said, tell us where we would find this. Tell us where we would identify it and say, that's Dilla. Well, the... The examples I like to use are uh, the first commercial album of a Detroit rap group called Slum Village, mm -hmm. uh, of which J.D. was a member. Uh, and that's called Fantastic Volume 2. It came out in the year 2000. But you can also hear it the same year in albums by Common, uh, an album called Like Water for Chocolate, or Voodoo by D'Angelo, on on, all on traditional instruments. Mm -hmm musicians putting themselves in rhythmic conflict with each other in ways that were very, very hard to do for human beings. A musician, a, a, a drum machine can kind of hold that conflict in place because it's a machine. It's harder for musicians to do that, but it's such an exciting and compelling feeling that musicians like Questlove and D'Angelo and Pino Palladino and Roy Hargrove wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to talk about how important this is to music and to modern music and especially to hip hop. But, but I, I guess the analogy that, that comes to my mind, um, you know, is, is to jazz. Um, and, and not just in terms of what Jay Dilla does for hip hop, but the way he relates to uh, the rest of the artists, the, the 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 way that he has this profound influence uh, over over other artists, and, and so if you go back to to jazz at its sort of its height in in you know the fifties and sixties, you have all of these these artists really experimenting with with different things and trying different things and really pushing the envelope in terms of what was quote-unquote acceptable uh, yeah. in, in terms of American music. And, you know, you, you can, if you were to draw it, I guess, on a diagram, you know, there would be all these connections between all the artists, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Miles and and Coltrane and, uh, you know, all, all, all the others, they all, they all cross paths. They all even work together, perform together. Um, and, and, and I think of hip-hop as more distant um, from that in the sense that uh, it's more of an individual art. I mean, it is not like the, the, the jazz era of the 50s or 60s, but Dilla is that connection between all of those things. He, he is the, 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 the sort of singular connection between hip-hop artists that you saw between the artists themselves 
in in the jazz era. And and, and it, to me, that's just fascinating how one person can essentially play the role of many, many superstars or play the role that many, many superstars did uh, in a different era. I have a couple of really interesting observations you're making here. Um, I will say that sort of coming up in New York in the late 80s, early 90s, there was very, it was a very um, uh, <clears throat> tight knit mm-hmm. and close community, even though there were, you know, rivalries and beefs and things like that. <laughs> Folks really listening to what other folks were doing, Mm -hmm. whether it be MCs or DJs or producers. So there have been moments that were very much like, you know, that famous photograph, you know, a a day in jazz or, uh, you know, taken on the Harlem, uh, you know, the stoop of a Harlem brownstone Mm -hmm. when the entire jazz community assembled. Uh, Hip hop has had moments like that. And Detroit actually had its own moment with uh, the Rhythm Kitchen and the Hip Hop Shop in sure. the early to mid 1990s. But you are correct in that Dilla was a very galvanizing figure, not so much between hip hop producers, although he pretty much has universal acclaim among the great hip hop producers, but a galvanizing fulcrum between uh, electronic producers and traditional musicians. Mm. And you know, there's this story in the book of this young uh, jazz student from New York who goes to the new school, uh, flying to Detroit with a friend of his who's just gotten signed to Interscope Records uh, and going to get a beat from J.D. down in that Conan Gardens basement. And that weekend in Conan Gardens in the basement changes the life of this young keyboardist who we now know as Robert Glasper. Mm. And, you know, what what jazz players like Glasper and Jason Moran and many others see in Dilla goes back to what you were saying. They recognize the level of craft. They recognize the willingness to try new things and to experiment and also a sense of play, right? That there's always this, this, this freedom, this, this fun, you know, jazz (laughs) at its best, it's fun. Hip hop at its best is fun. And if you ask uh, Dilla's younger brother, John, uh, also known as Illa J, why did Dilla do what he did? Why did your brother, you know, why was he attracted to these crazy offbeat rhythms? And he says, we're weird and we like, we like stuff that sounds funny. <laughs> right? Sometimes it just comes down to that. But there was a great recognition that, uh, from musicians uh, to Dilla, that he was indeed one of them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dan Charnas, author of the book Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Are you a fan of Jay Dilla? What did his life and legacy mean to you? Are there particular songs or beats of his that you love and think of when you think of him? Do you have questions about his life story and his legacy? 
Also, uh, are there other people who changed the field of a craft that way that you admire? Talk about people who you think are just not just influencers, but shapers of craft. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dan Charnas, an award-winning music and business uh, journalist and associate arts professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University and author of the book Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. We're talking about uh, Dan's book. We're talking about the life of Jay Dilla who uh, is, uh, was a native Detroiter, uh, and we're talking about the influence that he had over his craft. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you thought of Jay Dilla and his work, what you still think of Jay Dilla and his work. Also tell us what you think of people who really fundamentally alter uh, the space that they're working in, musicians or artists or writers or even business people. Uh, who just kind of rewrite the rules and send everybody in a really different direction than where they were headed. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get to listeners, Dan, I do want to talk a little more about Jay Dilla and Detroit. Um, and in the book, I, I think one of the, the great vehicles for talking about Detroit and the influence it had on him before he had influence on our city and, and the artists here is uh, the relationship that you uh, lay out between him and his mother and the way that she helps him develop and flourish. Talk just a little about, about that. Yeah, Marine uh, Yancey. Born Marine Hayes, uh, or Marine, actually Marine Sherrod, uh, in in Black Bottom in Detroit, I believe, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. You know, she grew up uh, in you know the the first Black community of Detroit before it was you know wiped out. Uh, and uh, James was born in 1974 into a, a sort of a transitioning Detroit. You know, Coleman Young had been, just been elected. Uh, and there was, you know, despite the fact uh, of what was going on with the global economy and our national politics, there was a sense of hope, I think. Um, Maureen uh, Yancey uh, and her husband, DeWitt, uh, were both sort of, uh, I guess, frustrated musicians in a certain way. You know, mm-hmm. his father's uh, musical career had been truncated, so he worked the line at Ford, basically, to support the family. And 
Marine and DeWitt settled their family in Covent Gardens in the late 1970s. What that meant, essentially, for James and his uh, brothers and sisters, uh, sister is that there were not a lot of resources mm. for him to develop. Uh, it wasn't the same Detroit public schools that Maureen had grown up in that taught her opera. Uh, there were just a very different kind of scenario. So there is this moment in the book where he's doing quite well at Farwell Middle School, guided by a excellent music teacher named Peggy McConnell. And he's playing uh, in the uh, Area E Orchestra um, uh, of the Detroit Public Schools. And after middle school, of course, there's for all parents whose children are in public schools, where is my child going to go mm where they can excel. And she lands him at uh, the Benjamin O. Davis uh, Aeros, uh, Technical, you know, Aerospace Technical High School. And it is not Cast Tech. It is not a, uh, uh, it's a decidedly vocational. And it's a place where young Detroiters learn to uh, disassemble and assemble jet engines and work on the instrument panels of the wings of aircraft. And this was this was the path that Maureen thought that that her son James could could take to some kind of prosperity in a in a place where uh, the chances for that kind of prosperity, even working on the line like his father, were were diminished. Ultimately, he bucks that. Ultimately, he finds a mentor in Conant Gardens who's going to let him use his equipment, uh, the very famous Detroiter Amp Fiddler. Uh, and there is some confrontation between him and his mother at that point while he's in high school about what what path he's going to follow. Wow, wow, and and that's such a that is such a Detroit story. What you just told, I mean, uh, so many of us have parallels in our lives to that narrative. Who those of us who grew up in that in that era, and of course, uh, I'm somebody who's born in the same era in. In Detroit, and I, th- I feel like there is always this kind of lingering influence of that that background over over the work. Then that that it's almost as if, uh, and maybe this is a little Detroit conceit, but Jay Dilla couldn't have been from anywhere else. He couldn't have done what he did if he wasn't a Detroiter. Am I am I out of line saying that? Oh, absolutely. Within line, I think. I mean, that it, there there are just some things that I try to identify in this book that make the product of his work a uniquely Detroit product. Mm-hmm. And it comes from many different strains. It comes from the fact that he came from musicians. It comes from the fact that uh, music and making music was such a way of life in Detroit. It comes from the arrival of the machine, not just the arrival of the machine in terms of manufacturing, but the arrival of the machine in terms of cultural manufacturing, making and consuming music. All of it uh, is very, very Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's get to some of the callers. Uh, Tim in Hazel Park, you're up first. What's on your mind? Hi, thanks so much, Stephen. Huge fan of the program. And Dan, thanks for this book so we could all fall in love with uh, Jay Dilla again. Hmm. Um, 
I uh, recently heard you, Dan, on the Dad Bod Rap Pod, and you all were talking about the mythology of Dilla, you know, making donuts on his deathbed, the beat-making monk. And you as a record industry, you know, former record industry professional, I was thinking about how we box in these singular, like, hip-hop artists, you know, De La Soul is dead after Three Feet High trying to make them hippies, or even Kanye, you're a producer, not a rapper. And wondering, like, if you could reflect on maybe why or how that happened to uh, Dilla. Hmm. Um, yeah, thank you. Great question, uh, Tim. Thanks very much for the call. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, such a great question. Uh, it's, I have encountered, even with the writing of this book, something I'll call the persistence of myth, meaning that this book, in uh, in a real way, disproves some of the myths, uh, one of which, you know, uh, Tim mentioned that Dilla did not create most of his last album, Donuts, in his hospital bed. But it is a very comforting uh, myth and inspiring myth to people, and so folks will will read right past it, uh, as almost as if that is not in the book. And so, myth does play a huge role in almost everything, and we can even see from world affairs, you know, what's going on in the world right now. A lot of it is sort of battling myths. So, uh, the myth of Dilla, I, I I guess I would look to deconstruct it. What is it? about this man working until the very end, even from his hospital bed? What is it about that that inspires us, that instructs us? What story are we, are we hanging on to? And also, what of, our, what of our stories are we putting on to Dilla? Yeah. Because he was a silent person, mostly, because he, he was a stutterer when he was a kid. So he evolved this pattern of almost bionic listening, he was an over-listener, you know, an overachieving listener. And so people who don't speak a lot become ciphers for the rest of us. We project our own feelings and thoughts and emotions onto them. And I think in a real way, Dilla was that for us, especially in the hip-hop community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Tim, uh, really appreciate the call and the provocative question. Let's uh, go quickly to Ryan on the east side. Ryan, I've only got about a minute and a half left, but to go ahead. Yes. Hello, Stephen. Uh-huh. So um, I just wanted to um, just let you guys know what uh, Dylan's influence was on me. Uh, I can remember sitting down at the Detroit Golf Club as a caddy, and my friend and I were debating how the baseline of Get This Money uh, went. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was exciting to us because we knew it from the underground, but we once we started hearing it on the radio, we were like, oh, yes, this is finally the time that, that we get our shine. Um, and then I want to also say that, you know, it, as I'm digging through my, my crate of uh, Dylan Records, or, or as I knew him, J.D., you know, um, his, his worldly influence. You know, I'm looking at records from a guy named Spacek uh, from England, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he did some he did a remix with Daft Punk that most people don't don't know, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it's also a record that Kanye sampled for some of his. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just really good to see. He's getting some recognition. I really wish that it was much more when he was alive. But again, as I'm reminiscing and going through these crates, it takes me back to being, you know, 14 years old and, and hearing him on the radio, yeah. and then as an adult, you know, listening and, and collecting the music that he that he's made. Yeah, uh, Ryan, I'm, I, I love that you called and and shared that. And I think there's so many people in uh, in Detroit, and especially from the East Side. Uh, who have that same feeling and connection with uh, with Jay Dilla. Okay, Dan Charnas, uh, author of Dilla Time, 
so great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, to everyone here in our community, you got to pick up this book and uh, and read it. It really is about us as much as it is about uh, Jay Dilla. All right, that's going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow to recap President Joe Biden's first formal State of the Union address. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.